Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. For today's episode, we have a show on a topic that's a little bit different from some of our others. I was joined by Dr. Paolo Dodorico of the University of California, Berkeley. He was here to talk about his recent article on food inequality, particularly among humans, and the consideration of food access as a fundamental human right. We also talked a lot about trade and its implications for food access and inequality, among quite a few other things, but let's let him explain. Paolo, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, to start with, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about sort of the concept of food access as a human right. Um, and, you know, the idea obviously seems very natural to us, but where did it come from originally? And, you know, is it enshrined in international law and policy, that kind of thing? Well, the uh, international community through the United Nations has recognized the right to, uh, to food as a human right in 1948. And so, and that... Uh, is the time when uh, the uh, UN signed uh, this uh, uh, the, uh, uh, de declaration on human rights. It included the right to food and many other uh, human rights. Okay, and so from there, it's been something that's recognized that you know governments have an obligation to ensure that their citizens are able to get the necessary number of calories. Yes, exactly. There was a, after that. There was a, a, in 1966 uh, the International Covenant on economic, social, and cultural rights that stated that uh, uh, every state has the obligation to ensure that all people have access uh, to a minimum amount of uh, food that is nutritionally adequate and safe. And why is that such a pressing issue right now? Is it a climate change thing, or is this just a function of growing populations, trade? You know, What are some of the driving factors that make this something that's particularly important at this moment? Well, they, there have always been, uh, in the last few decades, uh, a part of the human population was uh, uh, undernourished, and there's been estimated around uh, 800 uh, million people, so maybe more. And uh, uh, the reason why we talk more about that in recent years, in my view, is because uh, uh, we had some recent food crisis, and so the issue of feeding the planet and feeding the world has become... Uh, uh, it's come back as a resurfaced as one of the important uh, uh, issues that uh, humanity needs to, to face. And uh, right after World War II, in, uh, on the wake of the uh, Green Revolution, there were unprecedented uh, growths in the uh, amount and capacity to produce food. And now, in the recent years, we saw some. Uh, in the meantime, the population, global population, has grown, and we have seen uh, seen some uh, food crisis uh, in 2008, 2011. So there has been also uh, in the scientific community an impetus in uh, uh, studying food security, global food security, and uh, what affects uh, global food security. And clearly, then uh, there is uh, the uh, issue of. Uh, looking at food as a human right and a human right as a right that belongs to every human being. Okay. And, you know, I was hoping we could chat just a little bit more about um, the types of rights that you lay out. You, you describe them as positive and negative rights in the article. Um, could you tell us a little bit about those concepts and how they apply here? Yeah, I, there are, uh, uh, I thought that uh, this framework of the uh, uh, negative and the positive rights was useful to lead our uh, 
uh, thoughts and our analysis uh, of uh, food security because uh, basically not uh, there is a big difference uh, within the uh, class of human rights between rights that uh, require uh, inaction so this could be all the civil liberties uh, the liberty uh, to uh, to freedom, uh, to uh, dignity, to life, uh, they require that nobody else uh, breaks or uh, interferes with the, the individual's uh, enjoyment of these rights. And then there are other rights, which are defined as positive rights. They require, many times, they require some action. And these are rights like the right to education, the right to food. This requires that, that uh, uh, basically something something needs to be done for the person to enjoy these rights. So in the paper I make the example of the right to education, it means that the family, the community needs to provide some resources for the child to go to school. And uh, um, in the same way, the right to food is viewed as a positive right because uh, it uh, requires that something needs to be done in case uh, there is uh, no direct access to uh, enough food to uh, be free from hunger. So in that case, you know, there would be an onus on some sort of governmental or international governmental body to ensure that the minimums were met. Yes. At the same time, uh, um, that's sometimes also considered as one of the criteria to evaluate whether a government is a failing government or is a a good government in the sense that if human rights are not uh, fulfilled, that's uh, an indication of the fact that uh, the, the uh, government is missing on an important uh, responsibility. The other thing that uh, the UN clarifies is that the right to be free from hunger doesn't necessarily mean that uh, the state needs to provide the food. The state first needs to provide the conditions that are favorable and that allow people to provide food from, for themselves. Okay, and that would be sort of describing the negative right in, insofar as this, the government isn't interfering with people's ability to acquire food. Yes, or also in providing conditions that uh, then uh, allow for uh, the establishment uh, uh, of uh, a food system that allows individuals to pro provide food for themselves. Okay, and you mentioned the classification of uh, failing states. And, you know, I was wondering, you know, is that and are there other applications where, you know, having this rights-based framework for food security um, helps us do, you know, uh, do the right thing and, you know, apply the right standards to nations to ensure that uh, they're doing and behaving as they should uh, with regard to their citizens' rights to food access, yes, I think uh, I think the uh, use what is useful in this uh, classification between positive and negative rights is really that uh, they allow us to identify also some uh, uh, agenda items for governments in a way that. Uh, uh, it's not sufficient to say, okay, certain rights are not met, but something means that something needs to be done for the enjoyment of those rights. In particular, in the case of positive rights, overall, the issue becomes to providing resources to make it happen. And so that's a big difference between the positive and the negative rights, is that the next question is whether these resources exist and whether these resources are distributed in a way that... Uh, it's possible to, uh, for every human being to enjoy these rights. Again, human rights are rights that uh, an individual has just by, by the fact of being a, a human being. And so, are rights that cannot be 
given away and they belong to the individual. And so I think the important thing here is to see that uh, whether the distribution of resources is, uh, uh, there is a distribution of resources that uh, allows for the enjoyment of these rights. Okay, and that gets to a question that you know that I always wonder about is you know how do you figure that sort of thing out? You know where are the data and what data do you look at in trying to analyze this thing? Which I guess gets to the heart of sort of you know uh, your own analysis. What what informed it and how is it undertaken? Yeah, the the problem we have in this type of analysis is that we don't have data that tell us exactly the access to food for individual human beings. So we have uh, average country statistics. So we know that uh, uh, how food uh, production and food availability is distributed among countries. And so we can do a country scale type of analysis and look at uh, inequalities among countries. Then there is a whole problem of within country inequality that we are only indirectly able to uh, address in our uh, manuscript. And that's done mostly by looking at the wealth distribution within countries and the um, cost of food within countries. Okay, so the analysis begins, though, um, you know, at the between-country level, um, in which you look at the amount of food that countries are able to produce on their own, and then the amount that they're able to get through trade as well? Exactly, exactly. And so in this way, we can look indirectly whether a trade improves or not the uh, availability of food, whether uh, trade acts in the direction of uh, um, improving and so reducing the fraction of population that is uh, uh, not free from hunger. Okay, and what did your analysis show? You know, this is something that I think will be interesting for our listeners because, you know, there's often a lot of political opinion bandied about about the effects of trade and whether it's deleterious or helpful for certain populations. Um, and so it's it's very nice to have this sort of actual analytical approach to it. Um, what did you find? So what we find is that the trade tends to reduce inequality in uh, uh, food availability between countries. So that's an interesting finding. So overall trade tends to bring food from country rich to country poor, uh, sorry, between food rich and the food poor countries. And um, this clearly is on average. This doesn't mean that trade acts exactly in the direction of uh, eradicating uh, malnourishment. Because of, again, these are country based, uh, country averages. But the Interesting thing is that uh, overall, for the two decades and a half we have analyzed, the trade reduces global inequality in food availability. And is this just a function of mostly uh, countries that are you know, less able to produce, that don't have the agricultural capacity or otherwise, are able to, to buy food on the market or receive it as uh, some sort of aid? So what we see is that uh, uh, trade has uh, uh, the effect of uh, transferring uh, food from uh, uh, countries that have higher ability, capacity to produce food, to countries that have less uh, capacity to produce food, on average. And if we look at the, the inequality in the uh, biophysical endowments, and with this we refer to the, really the capacity to produce food in each country, and we'll be looking just at... Uh, the agricultural uh, land, the land suitable for agriculture, and uh, the maximum yields that can be attained in, uh, uh, in different areas of the world, we see that the inequality is much bigger. 
which means uh, that uh, by itself, uh, the, even the patterns of economic development uh, of agriculture have tried to uh, offset a little bit this uh, inequality. And in addition to that, the trade reduces that inequality even further. So if you look just by looking at this data analysis, we would tend to think that trade tends to reduce inequality. At the same time, in uh, the uh, article, we try to stress the fact that trade can be also the cause partly of this uh, inequality because uh, this, uh, uh, the um, global patterns of economic development uh, have often uh, acted in the direction of impeding some country to develop uh, a strong agriculture because uh, the local businesses uh, have been uh, sometimes displaced uh, by imports of uh, uh, food from other parts of the world at a, a lower price. And that food is, was often available at a lower price uh, in the international market because of subsidies existing in the, home, in the uh, major food exporting countries. Okay, and I hope you won't mind if I take a shot at, you know, an example of that. Uh, but in the U.S., we talk a lot about corn subsidies and the fact that the U.S. government subsidizes the price of corn, artificially lowering it, and that that may make it less valuable or less useful for a country that's less agriculturally productive to bother producing corn because it's hard to beat the U.S. price. It's exactly like that, and corn is a good example, in fact. So sub, uh, it's a subsidized crop, and the export of this crop uh, can uh, um, really be uh, outcompete local businesses and local producers. Okay, so this is a case in which, even as we acknowledge the broad trend that trade seems to help with food inequality, um, we have to acknowledge that there may be lurking beneath the surface some local effects that run contrary to that broader theme. Exactly. I think the problem is that some of the trade dependencies uh, have been self-sustained by trade itself. And how does that process work? Exactly as you said, because uh, if uh, uh, reliance on trade uh, impedes the development of a local economy or a local uh, agricultural production or limits or uh, um, uh, jeopardizes some of the local production, because of the competitive uh, prices uh, of uh, uh, imports, then uh, uh, this can create, uh, in the long run, a condition of dependency on, uh, uh, on imports for the import-dependent countries. And this can be also a problem because what has been observed in the recent food crisis is that uh, uh, when uh, prices uh, go, uh, when there is a food, sh food shortage and prices go up, some of the exporting countries can even uh, reduce their exports and then uh, um, ban with, through export bans, so they can uh, reduce their exports and then the trade or import dependent countries can be uh, left with a more limited supply of food. So it would be only a superficial understanding of your article to say that you know trade is a universal good because you also have um, effects that can be contrarian as well and those need to be looked at. Definitely, uh, definitely. And that was uh, the reason why we tried to uh, stress some of these points. It would be very superficial otherwise to think that tra trade is a, uh, has only positive implications. So of course, in the, long in the short term, there are some advantages to these uh, uh, global transfers and globalization of food because uh, a local food shortage can be compensated uh, through uh, food imports. But in the long run, uh, this uh, creates conditions of uh, trade dependency that can be also, as I said, self-sustained. And um, yeah, so there are all these aspects that need to, need to be accounted for.
Okay, that's that's fascinating. And I wanted to touch on something that you mentioned earlier, which was inequality within countries, because obviously that's quite the issue. Uh, you know, in, in any country, regardless of its uh, overall you know status of, of per capita calories, uh, you're going to have an enormous amount of inequality within. Uh, were you able to look at that as well? Only indirectly. So we have been looking at the income of the uh, poor, so of the lowest. Uh, uh, a fraction of, uh, of the population. So we looked at the lowest 20% in each country, and we looked at how uh, that income compares with the cost of food in each country. Just to have a sense uh, of the extent to which uh, the poor can be left with no uh, economic access to uh, food. And, uh, and this, uh, however, we have been unable to really go down to the scale of the individual and really verify the uh, impact of inequality or changes also in equality within country on food security in, in each country. Okay, that's that's interesting as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the broad trends? You mentioned that this was a, a study of, of an over 25-year time period. Uh, you know, are there trends that we see, you know, are th- is food inequality becoming more of a problem or less of a problem? Well, the inequality between countries remains about uh, constant. And uh, um, without going to the details on how this quantified, uh, usually we use uh, this uh, Gini coefficient, which is an index that varies between 0 and 1, and remains at 0.2 throughout the uh, period, with 0 being the co- complete equality. And so um, even though there's been an increase in uh, global trade, and an increase in uh, uh, global population overall, and also an increase in uh, uh, food production, the uh, inequality has remained about uh, constant. And I'm wondering now if, uh, if you'd like to tell us a little bit about you know, what kind of questions should we be looking at in the future? You know, are there, are there you know, research questions that um, you hope to explore in your own work or uh, research questions that you, know, are hope, you hope are explored by others that might give us even greater insight into food inequality uh, and how to ensure that the rights of the world's people are met appropriately? Well, I think one important contribution of this paper is really this uh, uh, linkage between inequality and uh, uh, human rights in the sense that uh, having inequality doesn't necessarily mean that some human rights are violated. And now we are focusing on the human right to food, uh, which is a positive right. And now we know that the positive right requires some resources to be allocated for the enjoyment of that right. So if uh, there are enough resources uh, in the world uh, and there are still some uh, people who are not able to enjoy a positive right, like the right to food, this means that the distribution of these resources, which is uh, uh, basically also inequality, is uh, uh, contributing to the violation of positive rights. And so I think the main contribution of this study is co- to connect the dots b- between uh, this, uh, uh, the notion of uh, uh, human rights and the notion of inequalities. Now that we have established uh, the relationship existing between human rights and inequalities, uh, we can look uh, at the distribution of uh, uh, resources and also distribution of uh, uh, wealth from uh, this angle and determine to what extent inequality is uh, uh, contributing to a violation of human rights, such as the right to food. And so we can uh, then uh, expand this in other direction 
and uh, one of them would be in the direction of water. And the reason why there is an interest in the distribution of water is that uh, water is a natural resource, uh, and uh, there is a lot of uh, interest in whether water should be priced and commodified, or whether water is a human right. And when I talk about water as a human right, uh, I refer to water for food production, not to, to drinking water, because the water used for food production is the uh, majority. And so I think uh, this uh, uh, discussion on the distribution of water resources and access to water resources can uh, uh, be strongly informed from, uh, by an analysis of, uh, um, uh, that is based on the analysis of the human rights to food. And so an article such as yours really does give us a useful tool for viewing things through that lens. I hope so. Paolo, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you very much for inviting me. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.